1: A man walks down the street, he says, why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. If you be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. I can call you Betty, Betty, when you call me you. Yes, what do you call somebody? (laughs) I picked this song over the show, but I'm having a hard time explaining its connection to the topic. The topic today is the pseudonym, the nom de plume, the pen name. It is the names that people choose instead of their own when they're doing certain things. Later in the show, you will hear the somewhat dark story of the Stratemeyer Syndicate, uh, which employed all kinds of writers to write Nancy Drew books and Hardy Boy books and other series books. Most of those writers, you know, their names never saw the light of day. Uh, And then at the end, we'll talk a little bit about what pseudonyms on the Internet do to people. Um, There's a surprise. There's a... I don't want to do a spoiler. But we're going to begin right now with the, the person who really did rate the book, as they say, uh, Carmela Churaru is the author of Nome de Plume, A Secret History of Pseudonyms, and most recently, in fact, out uh, in paperback for the, only for the last two days, also Lives of the Wives, Five Literary Marriages, which kind of grew out of, that, uh, of the pen name book and is the story of uh, wives who supported famous author husbands in you know, often fairly dreadful marriages. Uh, Thomas Pynchon's wife, she wrote everything. Thomas Pynchon has been watching sports for the last 40 or 50 years. Um, but anyway, it's great uh, to, to have you on the show. Thanks for agreeing to do this.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So I should say that I'm sitting just a few blocks right now from the home of one of the most famous pen names of all time. That would be Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. And, and you know, we could divide up pen names into all kinds of different categories. Uh, I think one of the categories is... Where the name really does become considerably more famous than the person, even if everybody knows who the person is. I mean, you know, I think you know names like like Mark Twain, like George Eliot, like like George Orwell. They just outstrip the person who who who's behind them, even if the name of that person becomes known. Right?
2: Absolutely. Isaac Dennison is another example, um, and I think over time some of those people. Felt that they had come to embody their pseudonym more than their kind of original self, which is really interesting.
1: Right. I remember uh, Karen von Blixen said she. Uh, I think it's in your book that she 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 picked a different name because she didn't want to keep answering stupid questions. Although it's not entirely clear <laughs> to me what the stupid questions were going to be. Did is that clear to you?
2: No, I I, I think she was she could be quite prickly in terms of uh, being interviewed, but I think that. You know, having an alter ego, like as you know, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens did, it's kind of, it's sort of a path to be a more charming and open and freer version of yourself that, for whatever reason, can't exist under your own name.
1: Right, and I, I, I sense that attitudes have changed over the decades and centuries to a certain degree. I mean, Charles Dodson apparently wasn't super worried about not getting credit for writing all the Lewis Carroll stuff and maybe that wasn't even quite as big an issue back in that time.
2: Well, you know, what's interesting about him is, uh, as you know, he was kind of a polymath and he was a a mathematician and a scientist and sort of inventor of puzzles and games and all kinds of things. And for him, Lewis Carroll was his literary self and that it was almost like putting something in a separate file folder and that's what he needed to do to write. Um, so, uh, it wasn't, um, terribly secret, you know, for his, for his lifetime, but it was something that he needed to do. And he, he, he would not respond to fan letters that were, you know, about Alice in Wonderland addressed to him, um, to Charles Dodgson, he would only respond to letters addressed to Lewis Carroll.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. That sometimes people want to be known for something else uh, in, by their own name, yeah. and then no, known for their writing. And then I think even within the world of a writing career, that happens too. Some writers, when they write genre fiction, uh, use a pseudonym. Joyce Carol Oates, I think, has two different pseudonyms de plume yep. for her her mystery writing. Uh, John Banville, the Irish writer, picked Benjamin Black because he really regarded himself as a serious writer of literary fiction, not somebody who wrote detection detective fiction. And then he just threw in that's the Wow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Apparently, Benjamin Black is so big in Spain that you can't pull the plug on the name there, but Banville stop stop using it <laughs> in other places. But anyway, yeah. Go ahead. What were you going to say?
2: Well, it's going to. You know, that's interesting what you just said because to me, it, that's almost like a brand. You know, it's <laughs> it's sort of a branding to have that uh, the Benjamin Black thing. It's kind of interesting how that can be used, and I think of that similarly with J.K. Rowling and Robert. Galbraith, who's you know her she writes those sort of um detective thrillers mm-hmm. um, th- you know it that's her that's her genre brand. um but you know, I think people a lot of people have asked me why would anyone want to use a pseudonym and of course that's a complicated answer to unpack, but just on the most basic level, what you're talking about, like I think about 20th century writers like Philip Roth and Toni Morrison and Philip Roth was always called a Jewish writer. Well, he didn't want to be called a Jewish writer because he saw that as part of what he wrote about but not who he was, you know, sort of first and foremost and it was quite limiting and I think similarly Toni Morrison really bristled at being called a black writer or African American writer because she just wanted to be seen as one of the great writers which she was and and didn't want her Books marginalized by being put into certain sections. Um, so you know, even though those writers didn't use pseudonyms, you can understand how identity can be so limiting and and frankly frustrating even for successful writers.
1: I think there's another problem that only affects a, a small group of writers, and that's prolificity. There is kind of a um, a yes. little bit of a prejudice against. And so when, I think another reason Joyce uh, Carol Oates wound up having a pseudonym is because people just ask her all the time why she writes so many books. And the same thing is true, I think, with Stephen King. There's this idea that if you're writing more than one book a year in the publishing industry, you're not a serious writer. How could you write more than one book a year? So he becomes Richard yeah. Bachman, right?
2: yeah exactly or you're not a very good writer you know that's yeah. the other assumption um but you know uh, there are all kinds of reasons why someone is prolific and and in the case of joyce Carol Oates, i think her choice not to have children was probably part of it you know she had nothing but free time and she had a husband who did everything to support her work so she was very fortunate that way but um yeah i think that being prolific can r- really work against you and Wanting to try different things can work against you, unfortunately. And, I, I you know, we see that similarly in music and in film, we, you know, with musicians and actors. I think they get frustrated by the labels that are put on them.
1: Right. Uh, um, back to it. First of all, I'll just tell a quick name dropy story, which is that uh, I was I'd, I've done a number of onstage things with Joyce Carol Oates. And we were down in Delaware on stage with Salman Rushdie. And the first question from the audience, it was how do you write so many books and she said i have a very low she has a, she said, I have a very low maintenance husband and then she said and here i am on stage with two very high maintenance men um. So, um, you know, and the, so, Sometimes these things form sort of daisy chains, like Richard Bachman, the Stephen King pen name. The rich, I think Bachman comes from Bachman Turner Overdrive, a rock band. But the Richard, yes, right. the Richard, is a tip of the cap to to Donald Westlake, who had, I think, at least eighteen different pen names, including Richard Stark. And I think uh, uh King has said that that's why he picked Richard.
2: Yeah, it was a sort of a, a mishmash of that. Um, but you know, I. I think that uh, that that makes me that think of um one of my favorite writers Fernando Pessoa um mm-hmm. who I write about in in my book because he had more than 50 uh different identities and he always said that they were not pseudonyms because pseudonym is simply signing a different name to your work he had what he called heteronyms you know dozens upon dozens of them and he thought of them as completely different personalities that he could not control and um and they wrote in different genres and the thing that i I mean i just always love talking about him because he's just one of my favorite writers and it's such a crazy story but you know he they all wrote in different genres they had different physical characteristics in his mind and um and whole backstories and sometimes they would attack each other in print you know one was a critic (laughs) and would attack you know the poetry of the other and so he was sort of this ringmaster in a way um which is amazing. And then the most amazing thing about Pessoa, who's very much loved and revered in Portugal today, but was, you know, unknown in his lifetime, he really didn't publish most of his work. And when he died, he left behind thousands of these fragments from all these different personalities. And so the question is, why would someone do that? And there's just no answer, but clearly it was a kind of compulsion for him.
1: I mean it sounds kind of fun. I mean 50s a lot. It
2: does. <laughs> but it does. but you know, he was a very lonely obviously eccentric and sort of strange guy and I think these heteronyms in a way kept him company and um he is not known to have had any romantic relationships except for possibly one and um when this woman broke things off with him he had one of his heteronyms write a letter to her on his behalf asking to take him back.
1: <laughs> um, I, 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 it's everything that i can do to restrain myself from just entering into the exact same life i think that would be a lot of fun to have a lot of different <laughs> names and personalities and pit them against one another yeah there's also kind of a what a tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive uh the french writer Romain gary uh explain tell that story because it's a it's a it's a funny way that it kind of came back to bite him a little bit
2: Yes, it's it, the the details are are we would need much more time for the the full story, which is crazy and fascinating and and I, I love the story but uh but the broadly speaking uh this guy Romain who who is a a French writer um was you know very frustrated by his career even though it was you know somewhat successful uh and he wanted to. Um, he, he he won a, the the highest award in France, but he was frustrated by how critics responded to him and the the limitations of of his successes as, as he saw it. And and Gary was in itself a pseudonym, and so he later inhabited an, another name, uh, Emile Ajar, and under a totally different genre, and unfortunately won that same prize again. And it it can only be one once. (laughs) And so uh, that was, you know, it was like he he just was trying to escape oneself and find another and found himself in the same trap. And he, uh, you know, in his second pseudonym was, you know, having his cousin go around and do press interviews for him and kind of cover who he was as a physical embodiment. And um, it's just a really wild story. And it ends tragically. I won't give it away. But he was you know, genuinely driven mad by the pressures of fame, the pressures to produce new work in a different way. And um, yeah, it's it's just an amazing story. And he's a, he's a great writer, by the way. I really recommend his, his works.
1: Um, Yeah. As long as we're on that kind of somewhat grim subject, (laughs) you might as well mention uh, Alice Bradley Sheldon as well. Another example, somebody who went down that road and found something lurking there.
2: Yeah. I don't want to um, give the impression my books a complete downer but there are some (laughs) stories that are just you know really um really tragic and alice sheldon is one of them you know she was a, a housewife who wanted to be a science fiction writer and felt that you know she was sort of a nobody and couldn't write anything as herself as alice sheldon and um and was was really depressed by that fact and and over time she just got the idea to write under a man's name because she was sending out stories she was getting nothing but rejections and um, she was at the grocery store with her husband and saw a jar of jam you know the uh, the tip tree jam at the, at the store mm-hmm. um, it's a it's a British brand and um, the name just came to her James Tiptree jr she added the junior <laughs> and <laughs> and all of a sudden um, you know it, it again this is why i just find the subject en- endlessly fascinating she found all this confidence and swagger and brashness and um freedom and wrote um very successfully all of a sudden had all this acclaim had all of these fans and people trying to chase her down and it was like a completely different life that she got to have and um and ultimately you know she too got sick of almost um as crazy as it sounds, almost jealous of all the attention that Tiptree was getting that she wasn't getting as herself as Alice Sheldon. And so she then kind of made these fumbling attempts to write under her own name and once again collapse into failure. And, um, and that story ends with her, um, shooting her husband and then herself in bed. Um, and, uh, so that was a a very sad ending to, to, um, to, to Sheldon's life. Um, right. But most of the stories so, in this
1: book are far more cheerful than that. We certainly don't want to give, as you said, people the impression of that. We should say a little bit about uh, the 19th century, particular women writers in the 19th century. Um, it's not just George Eliot. Um, say,
2: yeah, the Brontes. Yeah. yeah.
1: T- talk about that and why that was happening.
2: Well, I guess um, that's why, you know, I, when I think about writers using pen names today it's almost more of a game and i feel that far less is at stake for people now obviously partly it's a good thing that women can write and publish novels freely but certainly in the 19th century um it was you know much more difficult to write quote unquote serious literature serious fiction uh george eliot had a real disdain for jane austen she thought that was kind of chiclet um and she wanted to write you know big major uh, literature and and did but had to do it under a man's name and uh you know similarly the brontë sisters uh had to disguise themselves and act as agents for these these writers um you know for their for their um pseudonymous identities to get the work out in in very secretive ways and of course before the internet and email they would have to hand deliver the manuscripts or mail them and so there was a lot more secrecy and a lot. It was just very difficult to uh, to do. And it was very brave of them to to do, I think. And that's something that you don't see too often today in terms of courage. I mean, I think Elena Ferrante is, is one of the rare exceptions in that regard.
1: Yeah, I mean, a- another interesting case, and I, you know, Different people see this different ways. But in the late 90s and early aughts, we had J.T. Leroy, uh, who was yes. supposedly a young man who'd had a life as a, a truck stop prostitute, uh, writing and and then making public, public appearances uh, as J.T. Leroy. <laughs> this turned out not none of it was real. Uh, there was a woman behind it. Uh, there was another woman who was kind of a hired actor uh, playing, the, yeah. playing the role. But, I mean, I don't know. There have been documentaries made and feature films made about this and everything. There, there might have been reasons why that woman was initially uncomfortable about sharing herself and her identity as the writer.
2: I guess. I don't know. I, I, that that story kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and I, I um, felt that that was more a case of fraud because, as I understood it, I don't want to make— you know, false claims, but as I understood it, there was some exploitation of different celebrities and mm-hmm. kind of taking advantage of them. And I don't know. I, I just to me it, it it was I guess less interesting as, you know, I spent years and years researching and writing stories that captivated me. And I I really do admire someone like Elena Ferrante, who um, you know, for her anonymity is is a precondition for her being able to write, she has said, you know, she's got to have Absolute privacy to to be able to produce a work, and that's something that I that I understand and yeah, I, I really respect. I guess I think is rare in contemporary writers.
1: We should say that over the course of history, there have been times where people have used pseudonyms. Because it wasn't entirely safe not to. Spinoza writes, I think, uh, yep. uh, in, uh, anonymously. Uh, even his publisher, who's based in Amsterdam, claimed the book was published in Hamburg, uh, because you could just get in a lot of trouble for writing free thinking stuff in a very theocratic uh, period of history. And, and I think for other reasons in this country, you know, the the late eighteenth century was this hotbed of pseudonyms. Most of them Greco-Roman. Uh, we know that Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and John Jay write uh, as as Publius um and some of that i think is maybe cuz they don't want to get into huge fights with non-federalists <laughs> but maybe also they said cuz they didn't want to distract from the work with their personalities i don't know what your take on all that
2: is yeah yeah for sure that's something that i i i really understand and and um you know if you think about also writers who you know now it's less of an issue but writers who were gay and who needed to protect themselves because, you know, in in a way their their lives depended on it. Um, And I think also another reason is um, very complicated and messy family relations. And if one wanted to write about one's family, um, like Sylvia Plath did about her mother in the bell jar, she alternately wanted to get her truth out, which was really painful, um, but at the same time protect her mother from being hurt which is interesting that those two things could exist at the same time. Um but yeah, I think that, you know, it if nothing else having another name is it does give you a kind of freedom to let out truth in an in an unfiltered way that um is more difficult. You know, we all have our self-doubts and insecurities when we're sitting down to write as ourselves and so it just adds another layer of protection, I think.
1: Uh, I have to ask, your name really is Carmela Giraru, right? That's not a pseudonym. It
2: it is. I I would have come up with something much easier to spell and pronounce (laughs) had I had I thought of it. But um, but yeah, you know, I think that um, we we often want to, if you think about, um, you you know, certain contemporary writers like like Ferrante, wanting to escape um, her own life and feel safe writing under this other name, and. to have all the speculation, I think was really harmful to her and very difficult for her to, to manage. You know, she started doing this about 30 years ago and, um, and I think really felt that, um, it, you know, I think she has said something about how books have no need of the authors after they're written. And I, I, I really respect that. I mean, I, I have to admit I'm someone who's obviously interested in writers' lives because that's what I've written about, but I, also understand that the books, in a sense, have nothing to do with the actual people once they're out in the world, especially if they're fiction.
1: Right. Uh, well, we have to stop there. But this is uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, Carmela Geraru, uh, that's her real name, is the author of Nome de Plume, A Secret History of Pseudonyms. And most recently, you can buy it for Valentine's Day if you're listening on here on Wednesday. Lives of the Wives, Five Literary Marriages. Thank you. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew.
2: aim. aim, aim. They call me help. They call me Stacy. They call me her. They call me
1: Jane. That's not my name. That's not my name. That's not my name. That's not my name. They call me quite yeah, now. But I'm a night yet. Mary Jolie, always the same. That's not my name. That's not my name. That's not my name.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare.
1: I just want to say that the conversation I'm about to have in no way reflects my intention to give up on the idea of doing an entire episode of this show about the great series books. Uh, of the 20th century. Uh, that would include Tom Swift, Nancy Drew, the Bobbsey Twins, the Hardy Boys, Rick Brand, I could go on and on. Uh, but uh, in fact, those of us who grew up reading the Hardy Boy books, I read all 43, that's how many existed at the time. The first book I ever bought was a Hardy Boys book. Um, uh, but those of us who grew up reading those books, naïve children that we were thought there was a person named Franklin W. Dixon who wrote them. People who read Nancy Drew thought there was someone named Carolyn Keene who wrote those. Those were both fictions Uh, themselves. There was no such person. Instead, there was something called a Stratemeyer syndicate uh, that uh, basically recruited authors, uh, often gave them plot outlines uh, of what to write. Uh, And certainly in the early days of, like around 1925, 1930, if you wrote a Nancy Drew book, you got paid $125 for it. Uh, So so it was a very winning formula for Edward Stratemeyer, but not so much for the writers. Daniel A. Grouse is an editor at The New Yorker and the author of the Atlantic article, The Mystery of the Hardy Boys and the Invisible Authors. Uh, Welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much. So, yeah, you were sort of in a similar boat to me. You were a Hardy—I think you're considerably younger than I am, but because of your grandfather, you got indoctrinated, right?
0: Yeah, my I think it was my grandfather who first gave me some Hardy Boys books. I remember their classic blue covers sitting on my bookshelf. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I had the editions that had been updated since they were originally written. Um, and uh, I, I remember buying some new ones when I was a little kid and then eventually outgrowing them as many of us do.
1: So um, by the time some of the people, we should say that you tracked down some of the writers for the Hardy Boy books. By the time any living person now would have been recruited for that, it had been changed, the model had been changed a little bit. I think the Stratemeyer syndicate uh, wasn't really going anymore. Stratemeyer died I think in around 1930. There's even a rumor that his will contained a provision where some of the writers uh, got like one-fifth of what their royalties would have been or something like that. I'm not sure if that's hmm. true or not, but there were people like Mildred Benson who wrote, I think, 23 of the first 30 Nancy Drew books. She really was Carolyn Keene Keen for all intents and purposes. But as you were looking around, it was a different kind of thing. It was There was something called a book packager called Megabooks. How did this work?
0: That's right. There was a book packager that was responsible for uh, you know rounding up writers and putting together the... First drafts of the books, and then they were working with Simon and Schuster, uh, one of the big publishers. uh, Kind of handing over their materials, getting edits, and then uh, through Mega Books, each of the writers would get the edits, uh, revise the book as needed, and then Simon and Schuster would be the ones to publish it. So it was essentially a type of outsourcing.
1: So you found some of the people. I mean, really. Uh, once again, it would not have occurred to me when I was in fourth or fifth grade back in the 1960s to even think that Franklin, Dixon, Franklin W. Dixon was anybody other than the author and that the author was anybody but Franklin W. Dixon. But by now, I think people kind of know that. Maybe kids don't. But what we didn't know was who, in many cases. That was your question. How did you manage to find people?
0: Yeah. I, You know, a Simon & Schuster editor actually told me that they still get letters addressed from from kids uh, addressed to Franklin uh, W. Dixon, it, it, there is still this uh, sort of mystery around it that people do assume he's a real person. Um, my method was: uh, I started looking on LinkedIn and uh, also just you know online bios for any writers who mentioned that they had written for Mega Books or for Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys. And a few writers did kind of advertise that they had contributed to the series, so I reached out to them, and a few of them were willing to talk, and some of them were, you know, surprisingly candid about this, um, you know, this work
1: that they had done as ghostwriters. How did they feel about that work? I mean, obviously, they probably would have somewhat mixed feelings about what it meant to do something like that.
0: Yeah, I spoke to one writer named Christopher Lampton, uh, who wrote 11 Hardy Boys books in the 80s. And, you know, he was pretty matter-of-fact about it. He, he basically told me that you knew when you signed the dotted line that you weren't going to be credited, and it was anonymous work. And he was happy to receive a check. Um, he got paid $5,000 a book, and, um, you know, he enjoyed the work. It seemed like an honest living to him. <laughs> um, you know, I, I also spoke to an author of the Nancy Drew series who wrote for Mega Megabooks, um, Alice Leinhart. And uh, you know, to her, she mentioned that the editing process was a bit um, disembodied. It was like she would send off her manuscript, and it would come back all marked up from some editor who she'd never met. And it, these were the the multiple layers of editors, first at MegaBooks and at Simon and Schuster, and then she would do the work and send it off. And it, it was sort of a strange, uh, distant process, she said.
1: Yeah. And uh, I mean, a lot of that is also, well, first of all, we should say there's a lot of genius to all this. I mean, maybe it's kind of twisted and evil genius, but there's a lot of genius to this model, (laughs) including the fact that a normal person having written, say, a dozen or two dozen or three dozen books about a particular character would probably be ready to jump off a very high building at the idea of writing a 37th (laughs) one and would kind of want to be doing something with that character. Gee, maybe Nancy Drew should get married. Maybe maybe one of the Hardy Boys should, you know, transition. Who knows? But, you know, like as a creative person, you don't want to just write about the same characters doing pretty much the same thing, stuck in the same groove all the time. But the series kind of depended on not very much changing, right?
0: Yeah, it, it, it was a formula, and it was a formula that seemed to work. And that's, you know, some, it's continued now for you know, a hundred years, uh, or more. And, um, I, I do think that some of the continuity comes from, um, you know, there can be, um, the keepers of the original characters and the formula outsourcing it to, to new writers who are all the time coming up with new riffs on the, uh, the original idea. So when I was writing this piece, uh, many years ago, um, I read one of the new Hardy Boys books, and interestingly, you know the um, the town of Bayport, where the Hardy Boys live, has been uh, become a a film set, and there's a a horror movie being filmed in this suburban town. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, not to not to spoil, but um, there there's a plot involving a uh, a writer who's been forgotten, and it's (laughs) it seemed like the Hardy Boys was a little bit aware of its own history in this book, and that you kind of needed new writers to be breathing a little bit of new life into the series.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's meta. Uh, who, thought, who, could, who would have thought the Hardy Boys would get meta? Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't look you up on LinkedIn, but I'm guessing that you may have had some similar experiences to experiences that I've had being a contributing editor at various magazines and things like that. And it's not that different. I mean, uh, yes, my name appeared on all 14 articles I wrote for Mademoiselle about how to get him to commit, Um, you know, but I mean, other than that, I didn't, my my goal was to never go into the office in most magazines that I ever worked for, (laughs) never see editors if I could possibly avoid it. Um, You know, I mean, there's a kind of person and writers are, a lot of writers are that kind of person who really don't necessarily require a bustling newsroom to inhabit, you know, when they're working on stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, writing can be a pretty solitary profession. And, uh, and they definitely came at this story, not because I was, you know, still a fan of the books, like in a lot of ways, they seemed really dated. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I was no longer drawn to the writing, but I was drawn to the writers because I was a freelance writer at the time. And I was also working as a public radio producer and, You know, of course, maybe your listeners realize that uh, every time a a segment airs, there's a person or many people, uh, you know, artfully crafting the story and editing the sound. And they're never named. And I I identified to some extent with all these writers who were kind of in a similar position. They had had kind of uh, signed away the right to be the author of their own story and, and were instead handing the story off to someone else.
1: Right. I mean, it, it, it's, first of all, we should say that uh, this segment is being produced by, by McCusker, the Wonder Kid and her bad cat Penelope. I wanted to be clear. Uh, <laughs> she's not going to be anonymous here. But yeah, I mean, Great. look, when we were contributing editors and tri- contributing writers and stuff like that, we need get like health insurance. <laughs> or I mean it's that kind of problem that I think probably showed up a little bit in the lives of some of these earlier contributors to to Hardy Boys and and Nancy Drew and other series books
0: yeah I was actually a little surprised to find that you know I I was I wrote this in my 20s and was um, talking to writers who had you know started their careers in the 70s and the 80s and I was surprised to find that they were struggling with some of the same financial realities that I was which was you know, they were they were getting paid per book in these flat fees, and they didn't have a way to get benefits, and they didn't have kind of the stability of knowing that you'd have work for the coming months or years. And I think uh, I thought of it as something that was maybe a, a modern development of the internet age, all the anonymous and, and freelance writers that were trying to make it in this tough economy. But it, you know, it was clear to me that these patterns were established a long time ago, and um, and they were they were struggling with that to some extent.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think today, you know, we really have that kind of gig economy, uh, and you, in many cases, young people don't have just one job; they have a whole bunch of jobs. They're cycling through all the time uh, and doing a lot of stuff as piecework, and and sometimes it's it's not individually all that lucrative. It's dependent on a lot of volume. Uh, but you look back right. at at this system. And it was very, very similar. I mean, and it was certainly not meant— I mean, one thing that that never happened to any of these writers, I think, in the history of this whole phenomenon is getting any kind of copyright. Uh, Stratemeyer initially mm-hmm. held on to copyright. I'm sure Mega Books or Simon & Schuster or whoever just held on to copyright. And, you know, if you're an author, that— there's sort of two things that can compensate a little bit for <laughs> for the, the the how hard it is to be a writer and how how hard it is to make a living. One of them is some kind of public acknowledgement of your work and your name, and the other one is copyright, and you can get either one of those doing this kind of ghostwriting. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's true. I mean it is a, it is fascinating that uh, you know, Stratemeyer, Edward Stratemeyer was uh so savvy and clever and, and so successful. I think he was kind of admired by the people that I spoke with about the Hardy Boys. And at the same time, you know, the Stratemeyer syndicate sounds like a villain straight out of yes. the Hardy Boys books. Um, it's, it, it does feel like a machine that strips away a lot of what's uh, special about being a writer.
1: Yeah, I found myself thinking um, <laughs> as I prepared for this of the moment in the original uh, movie, the producers, where uh, the playwright Franz Liebkin is shown up at, with a gun in the office of the of Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel, and he's firing the gun around, and they're hiding under a desk. And at one point, Zero Mostel turns to Gene Wilder and goes, "The next play I produce." No author, uh, and that's kind of Stratemeyer's genius. Is that um, the other thing that he was able to do early on, as I understand it, is cut the price of books. Uh, one of the ways that his books, uh, the Stratemeyer books, took off is that they were a lot cheaper than other kinds of books, because mm-hmm. he, well, and once again, he had a, a factory basically, as opposed to authors.
0: Yeah, and if you look at the books, these you know blue hardcovers. They all kind of look the same, and yes. you could imagine that they all get made in the same assembly line, and uh, the same kinds of artists were drawing the uh, the covers. And you know, it, it is a way to really pare down <laughs> the process of book publishing and take away. Um, You know, the differences between books that make them expensive.
1: Yeah, it's like some kind of dystopian future, except it's the past or the present. Uh, We've managed to erase the individuality of authors. They're all called Franklin W. Dixon. They all have the same color on their books. You know, it might be just worth pausing here and saying there's an interesting inversion of this idea today, and so, so here you've got Franklin W. Dixon uh and you've got Carolyn Keene and other pen names like that people who don't exist uh and have not and are are sort of these universal nom de plumes today, we have James Patterson, who does exist, but it seems pretty <laughs> clear <laughs> that he can't possibly be writing all these books. It's kind of an opposite thing. He used to write all these books and then it's just sort of there be there's sort of a brand, and I'm sure. I don't know if you went on LinkedIn, you might be able to find the people writing the James Patterson books, but not for somebody who doesn't exist, but for somebody who does. Yeah, I guess
0: if you want to complain about that, uh, uh, you can say that they're uh, they're lazy and they're uh, relying on other people's work to do their jobs for them. The other, on the other hand, you could think of them as uh, modern day um, artist schools, right? Like The School of Rembrandt <laughs> is the group of artists that, that painted the Rembrandts or painted in the style of Rembrandt. And they still go in museums today. So, um, you know, maybe maybe James Patterson is just smarter than the rest of us. You
1: know, I think uh, Edward Stratemeyer and James Patterson would say, we are engines of job creation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe not the greatest jobs in the world, but jobs. Daniel A. Gross, thank you so much for your time. Editor at The New Yorker and author of The Atlantic Article, The Mystery of the Hardy Boys and the Invisible Authors. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much.
0: All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show.
1: And the technical producer of today's show is the maestro, Dylan Reyes. And this particular episode was produced by McCusker the Wonder Kid and her bad cat Penelope, who's an extremely bad cat. Uh, It is now time to talk about uh, the wonderful—hold on here. I can't even hear myself talk. Uh, It is now time to talk about the Internet. Here to do that is Alfred Moore, senior lecturer in politics at the University of York uh, and the conductor of of a study about how people— act as commenters on comment threads on in online publications depending on the way in which they are identified. Alfred Moore, welcome to our conversation. Hey, thanks very much for having me. So explain what it is that you did. I mean, or maybe we can begin with what turns out to be a somewhat false assumption, which is that one of the reasons people often behave badly online is because they're anonymous. Um, You decided to take a look at this to maybe even test it out observationally. Explain what you did and, and what you found.
3: Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, we, we wanted to test that assumption. I mean, we kind of shared it ourselves, right, that people would behave better if they used their real names. Would you talk like that in front of your mother? That kind of, that kind of thinking. But we didn't really know, so we wanted to take a look. And one of my brilliant colleagues at the time had a lot of skills in network science and data scraping, and he noticed that the Huffington Post had changed their commenting policy From a policy where pretty much anybody could just log in, create a pseudonym, say whatever they wanted, and then create a new one again five minutes later if they were blocked. You know, so that kind of scenario, sort of drive-by commenting, which led to a sort of predictably unpleasant, a lot of trolls, a lot of bots. Mm -hmm. And so they changed their policy requiring registration. So everybody had to register. They could still choose a pseudonym. um, But... They had some more control. And I think they were using Facebook to to control the registration on, on the backside. But it was what people saw was still a pseudonym. And then after a period of that, they switched to outsourcing the whole commenting uh, architecture to Facebook. So your face would pop up, your name. And OK, maybe you you don't use your real name on Facebook, but most people do. And so this wasn't perfect, but this looked to us like a really nice sort of natural experiment to say there's three different phases of time here with different regimes of identification. But probably, you know, over a two year period, this was a similar sort of community. Right. You you can't control for everything and maybe something changes in the outside of that. But what we were expecting was that you'd see progressively as these changes took place, lower and lower participation because it's more hassle, um, but better behavior. And measuring behavior just very crudely in terms of the amount of swear words in posts. And we later reanalyzed the data using a more sophisticated sort of measure of discourse quality. But what we found in both cases was that actually the middle phase was the better one, that things improved enormously after people were forced to register. Um, And then things did not Get any better and in some respects got worse after they outsourced the whole lot to Facebook. So, that for us was just the surprising and interesting result that the stage where people were able to use what we call stable pseudonyms, where they have pseudonyms that they can't just change very easily, you know? uh, when they're in, in that kind of environment, people seemed to behave a bit better in the discourse. This was on politics mm-hmm. articles on the front page of the huffington post i should I should have said
1: yeah and the, i i should the, say that as a free l- yeah as, as somebody who's done a lot of writing over the course of my life i've i've lived through exactly those kinds of, of transformations of common threads uh, the one that you're describing, I, I didn't write for the Huffington Post, but I wrote for places where that exact thing happened. So I, I can imagine on my own some working hypotheses about why that middle phase where you're not using your own name, you're using some kind of pseudonym, but you've registered, you've gone through a registration process, why that would uh, cause commenters to exhibit more cognitive complexity uh, and, and be perhaps less troll-like than, than they were when they were fully anonymous or even even when they were just their Facebook identities. Did you folks come up with your own hypotheses about this?
3: Yeah, I mean, we, we realized, you know, this wasn't something we could kind of definitively answer. We could say, look, we took a look, and we saw this, you know, we observed this. But the way we explained it, uh, and the, the way we explained it, was that this was about commitment to a community, and that what you get with the stability what you get with what we call the durability of a of a pseudonym it's continuity over time what you get is the possibility of of people engaging with you and building reputation over time within a particular discursive community like within this particular group and so to us What was very significant about this phase is that it's got durability of pseudonyms. They persist over time and people can be kind of held accountable a little bit for for what they say because they're not easy to change. But the other really important thing we think is that they're not, as we called it, traceable. They're not connected, or at least they're not connected to other parts of their life, right? So the contrast with Facebook is that, well, your comments would have cross posted onto. Facebook and then been seen by, I don't know, somebody on your sports team, a work colleague, a relative, all of this, the audience becomes somebody who's very much outside the room. And our sort of sense was that those two things together, the possibility of like some stability and durability that builds enables people to build reputation on the one hand, and that protection from the exposure of your comments to other communities under your name. Like those two things together are at least conditions for a better quality of discussion.
1: I mean, yeah, I I think it makes an inherent sense that if you're going to do this uh, and if you're going to maintain a stable identity, and I think it's, you know, maybe significant that it is Set of political discussions, it might go a little bit differently on, on on other kinds of forums that one could imagine. But in this situation, why not be the smart person? Why not? And we should say that there was less swearing also uh, mm-hmm. under these circumstances. Why not be the articulate person who doesn't resort to f bombs? Uh, why not yeah. be the person who who's impressive as opposed to a mere troll? Yeah, and and the, the,
3: and the thought was that. You would be concerned for your reputation. There would be a little bit of esteem. I mean, we know this when you post any comment on a thread. I mean, I've I've done it in the past on various uh, cricket blogs that <laughs> won't be familiar to you. Won't be familiar to your listeners. But um, but you know, the little the little endorphin hit you get when somebody likes your post or responds favorably to your comment—that's nice. So there's there's a kind of reputational and esteem concern we think that's that's being built up you know in this space but the fact that you that because it's not under your own name and they're therefore not obviously visibly connected to other sorts of social you know areas of your social life you can't signal to anybody else outside the room with it in a very easy way like you can't be doing this to impress someone else or you can't be you know so so it takes away that element of of you kind of talking to one group of people but your real audience being someone else
1: You know, one of the things we're talking about right now is a mostly dead civilization because the fourth iteration was getting rid of comments entirely. An awful lot of publications decided that moderated comments or just allowing them to go crazy. It was just more trouble than it was worth. It caused more havoc, uh, you know, even under the best of circumstances uh, than was tolerable. And so a very interesting experiment of making journalism and other kinds of publication more interactive um, really kind of – foundered. And and I'm wondering if the things that you learned observationally and then the concepts you applied on top of them give you any ideas about how this could be done better.
3: Yeah, I mean, what we took away from it, I mean, one thing I should say is that one of the things that, that we sort of take away, one of the limitations we want to keep in mind is that we think that this, this kind of mechanism right, of, of creating, a, a, creating a stable, an environment of stable pseudonyms is an ingredient but it doesn't do the whole work and that you know you also need good moderation and good moderation is expensive and Mm -hmm. difficult and even though news organizations realized that people loved it when they could express themselves through comment that was a that was a great kind of uh, user feature it was also expensive and difficult to keep these from being captured by bots trolls various kinds of you know, and becoming, becoming unusable. Um, so we think that what the lessons that can be learned from it are lessons about how to build community and how to build community and, and how to sustain commitment to online communities. And, and I guess, you know, our key, our key little takeaway from that is that it doesn't have to necessarily be a space in which people are identified by their real names. And it might be more productive. It might give people, in fact, a bit more freedom if they, if they don't have to. But I think that lesson about building community goes beyond simply news commenting sites. I think it's, this, it's the sort of insight that I think can apply a little more widely.
1: Yes, and certainly, uh, yeah, in, in the world of sports on a daily basis, among other places. Uh, Alfred Moore is a senior lecturer in politics at the University of York. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Dylan Ray's and McCusker The Wonder Kid. No thanks to Penelope. All she did was chew up some wires and go poop in the corner. I
3: don't want nothing serious Cause even on a slow day I can have a three-way Chat with two women at one time I'm so much cooler online So much cooler online I get home, I kiss my mom And she fixes me a snack And I head down to my bed